So let's take a Bible and let's go to Acts chapter 12, verse 25. As Gary mentioned, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We join thousands of other Christians around the world to remember and, and pray for our brothers and sisters experiencing persecution. It's not that we remember them only today, but, but one way throughout the year that we give more concentrated time praying for them together as, as an assembly. So the sermon is going to be shorter uh, so we can pray for the persecuted church during this, this service. And normally I've chosen a passage dealing with persecution in particular for this Sunday. Uh, but we've encountered a number of passages more recently in Acts already dealing with persecution. I mean, Peter and John get arrested in chapter 4, verse 3, and the authorities threaten them not to speak in Jesus' name, but the Lord gives them boldness to speak anyway. The apostles get imprisoned in chapter 5, and they're also beaten for the name of Jesus, but they insist on obeying God rather than men. And they go out rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer. In chapter 7, the Jews murder Stephen and persecution scatters the church, but it can't stop the gospel from advancing. Those who are scattered, they go about preaching the gospel. Saul ravaged the church in chapter 9, but the Lord saves him and Saul the persecutor becomes Saul the persecuted. And then most recently, Herod kills James by the sword and then imprisons Peter, but the people pray fervently and God frees Peter and he kills Herod and the word of God increases all the more. So again and again, wherever the gospel advances, we see that persecution follows. We're going to be covering persecution even more in the book of Acts. And so what I'd like to do is just keep moving on into Acts 13 this morning. But that doesn't mean that this passage has nothing to do with praying for the persecuted church. Two things are going to stand out as we walk through. And that one is God's presence with the church by the Spirit. And the other, the Spirit working in the church through prayer. And in the Spirit, I pray, we are going to gather in a little bit in clusters and, and pray for God to act on behalf of the persecuted. So before getting there, I, I, want, uh, I want to read our passage beginning with chapter 12, verse 25. It says, And Barnabas and Saul, they returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and, and sent them off. 
You may remember that there was a famine in Judea and, and the church had, had decided to bring relief to those saints in Judea and they sent that relief off through the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And now what we have is Barnabas and Saul returning from that ministry. The Spirit, in a moment we're going to see, the Spirit will send them out to proclaim the Gospel where Christ has not yet been named. But here, we can't, it's not, Luke's not letting us forget that the Spirit was also reaching the needy where Christ had already been named. So both were important aspects of the mission of the church. The gospel embodied among the needy saints and the gospel proclaimed among the nations. And between both of these aspects, we get another snapshot of the local church, only this time it's the local church in Antioch. And this snapshot gives us four more ways the Spirit works through the church on mission. One, the Spirit gathers a diverse people into the church. The Spirit gathers a diverse people into the church. And we know that this is the Spirit's work because you have kind of the programmatic statement in chapter 2, verse 17, that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Not just Jews, but all peoples without distinction who believe on Christ. They would receive God's Spirit. And that plays out here. So notice first the geographical diversity. Barnabas is from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. We know that from chapter 4, verse 36. There's also Simeon, who was called Niger. Given the way Luke lists names elsewhere, this was more likely a nickname than a birth name. The ESV footnotes add that Niger is, is a Latin word meaning black or dark. So Simeon's likely a man of, of darker complexion than others in his region. And then comes Lucius from Cyrene. So this is North Africa. Menaean is next, and he's likely from Galilee, growing up with Herod the Tetrarch, it says. And lastly, Luke lists Saul, who we know is a, is a Hebrew from, from Tarsus. So we see geographical diversity here. Notice also the diversity in social status. Social status. Verse 1 says that Menaean was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. And this basically means he grew up with Herod Antipas. Antipas was the, the Herod reigning throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so Menaean would have had greater exposure to the higher classes of society. Also, we learn from chapter 4 that Barnabas was quite wealthy, right? He had, he had lands, and he was just selling these lands to, to support his brothers and sisters in need. And then lastly, notice the diversity in age. If Menaean was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, then, he, then he's likely in his mid-60s at the time Luke is writing. So such age diversity plays an important role in the church. For example, later on, Paul will you know, command the older women to disciple the younger women in Titus 2. And that's more difficult to follow in churches that lack age diversity. 
But here the Spirit gathers a diversity of ages. And so we find diversity in geography and in social status and in, and in age. Now one could imagine the various challenges such diversity could present. The geographical diversity would present an array of, of ethnic and cultural and, and religious backgrounds. Ethnically speaking, we, we know tensions existed between, between Jews and Gentiles. People on the island, you know, they may not do things like people on the inland. The rich may not be used to, to working alongside the poor, and, and the poor might envy the rich. And the younger generation might snub the older one. And we live in a day where such tensions do exist. It's not hard to imagine them. We, we hear about them often. We, we feel them when our own upbringing and cultural presuppositions collide with someone else's. And these tensions normally separate people in the world. What we're getting, picture after picture of the church, is that the church ain't like that in the book of Acts. You see, where the gospel owns a people, the Spirit works to unite those people. Revelation chapter 5 shows a diverse, blood-bought people perfected in the final kingdom, bowing and worshiping the Lamb together. But the Spirit's work to gather a diverse people into the church points others to that hope now, today. God wants a diverse group of people worshiping the Lord together even on this side of eternity. We are an outcropping of, of what is to come. Shalia Newbell has a new children's book out called God's Very Good Idea. A true story of God's delightfully different family. And in it she helps children see how, from peop how people from, from all ethnic and social backgrounds are valuable to God and how Jesus came to rescue all kinds of people. See, Jesus' cross purchased an omni-ethnic people to worship the all-glorious God. The Spirit takes the work that Christ accomplished on the cross and He applies them to people from all kinds of backgrounds and then because of that work unites them in one body where we see them here now worshiping the Lord together and praying and fasting together. The Spirit gives this diverse people a shared union with Christ and a common purpose to build the kingdom of Christ. Not their own individual kingdoms, but His kingdom so we have great hope for God to work that same unity in Christ here at Redeemer. You feel tension? The Spirit is able, folks. We're watching it unfold throughout the book of Acts. Next, the Spirit gives some to, to lead and equip the church. The Spirit gives some to lead and equip the church. These five men he describes as prophets and teachers in verse 1. The New Testament often distinguishes prophets from teachers or prophecy from teaching. In 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, prophecy is the more spontaneous of these two ministries. 
It's tailored for specific situations in the church. And when prompted by the Spirit, the word may involve encouragement, it can involve consolation, it can involve rebuke, it could involve specific direction for the people who are gathered. We saw it happen once already in, back in chapter 11, verse 28, where Agabus stands up and, and foretells by the Spirit that there would be a great famine in all the world. Prophecy happened often enough for some that the early church called them prophets. And some of these prophets had complementary roles alongside the apostles. We see that in Ephesians 2 and 3. But others functioned in a more general role than including giving direction or encouragement that reflected the truth and goals of the apostles' teaching. Teaching, on the other hand, wasn't as spontaneous based on some of of Paul's words to Timothy. It involved preparation through assiduous meditation on God's Word. It continues, it it consisted of, of explaining the content of God's written revelation clearly and regularly in order to equip the church in sound doctrine. Teaching guarded the church from compromising the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who fulfilled this role most often were called teachers. But here's the the tricky thing about Acts chapter 13 verse 1. Luke doesn't really specify which of these men are prophets in particular and which ones are teachers. It may even be the case that that the Spirit gifted some of them to serve in both roles. We we saw Barnabas and Paul teaching the church earlier in chapter 11, verse 26. And then in the next passage that we'll get to, Paul will prophetically rebuke a magician who stands in the way of the gospel. In any case, the Spirit gifted some to equip his church in sound teaching And then to lead his church in ways that aligned with that teaching. So when it says in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, we don't have to wonder, you know, how the Holy Spirit spoke to the church. Luke makes it clear by saying there were in the church prophets and teachers. How did he speak to the church? By the prophets and teachers. And since the guidance is so specific in this case, it's more likely the direction came through the prophets in particular. The work of the Spirit hasn't changed. He still gives some to lead and equip the church. He still speaks to the church through leaders like this. And our role as a body is to recognize His work and to appoint qualified men for this leadership. Our role is to listen to the Spirit Bring God's Word to bear on our lives through such leaders. And that's for me too. I'm an elder here, but I listen to my elders, Dale, Wes, and Ben. Or as I listen to others of you speak prophetically into my life as the Spirit is moving you through His Word. That doesn't mean we just accept everything without discernment. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Test everything. And hold fast to what is good. Right? This is Paul's way of saying, eat the chicken and spit out the bones. We test everything by scripture. The church should have other trusted leaders who can weigh someone's counsel against scripture. Another test, you know, is whether the counsel is just coming from an isolated source all the time. Or is the spirit moving the whole body together like we see here towards this 
particular end. The character of a person would also matter in our discernment. You know, does a person have a, a track work record of stability, self-control, or are they prone to rash judgments and exaggeration? But when the Spirit makes his leadership obvious, the church should follow his lead in the mission. And that's what they do here. And notice something the Spirit uses in leading the church. The Spirit guides the church through corporate prayer and fasting. He guides the church through corporate prayer and fasting. The Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. But he does this in the context of worship, which includes prayer and fasting. Notice the beginning of verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord... And fasting, the Holy Spirit said. And then verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In the New Testament, worship isn't simply songs that we sing. 1 Corinthians 14.25 speaks of one's heart being exposed by the Word. And the man falls on his face in repentance and says, Surely God is in your midst. Paul says this is worship. Romans 12 verse 1 speaks of presenting our bodies, our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And he says this is our spiritual worship. You read one earlier from from 1 Peter where part of our worship was declaring the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Worship involves ascribing to God supreme worth such that we offer Him our whole self in our thinking and in our speaking and in our serving. Part of offering ourselves to God involves here prayer and fasting. They, they worshiped the Lord in prayer. They communed with God. They expressed their dependence on God in prayer. Prayer is the means we've seen by which God achieves His purpose in the world as we depend upon Him. Scripture gives many examples of how the early church prayed, the kingdom to come, justice to prevail, Boldness to share the gospel, strength to endure, provision for the mission, and so forth. And based on the answer here, part of the praying was for how the Lord's going to use them next. Hey, mission to the needy in Judea has been accomplished. The the guys have returned. We're being built up. All right, what's God doing next through our church? But Luke also adds fasting here. Fasting. He mentioned it twice. Now we see on other occasions where the church gathered to worship, they eat. They eat together. They feast together. Often. That too is part of some of their gatherings that we see. But there are occasions that you also see peppered throughout Acts where we find them fasting. When was the last time fasting was part of your worship? 
So this means they voluntarily abstained from food, food being a very good gift from God, but they voluntarily abstained from food for a specific spiritual purpose. In Matthew 6.16, Jesus assumes that his disciples would fast. He says, when you fast, not if you fast. In Matthew 9.15, even, even, uh, Jesus even promises that his disciples would fast. When the bridegroom is taken away, they're going to fast. No sense in fasting while he was with them, but when he's taken away. And so his disciples would fast as they awaited the bridegroom's return. There are, of course, wrong ways to fast. And Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 about this where motives are, are really crucial for our fasting. Just as much as in our praying. But when it's pursued rightly, fasting becomes, we might call, the exclamation point of our prayers. That's not mine. That's John Piper's. The exclamation point of our prayers. Fasting says, Lord, I want to know you and follow your will more than I want to eat. Fasting doesn't have to be limited to food. It it could extend to other good gifts to help grow your hunger for God. But this hunger to know God and to know God's will, to know how He wanted to use the church was part of their worship. Let's just ask yourself, when you, when you come to our meetings, when you come to this meeting on Sunday morning and Sunday school, and when you gather in a care group, do you, you have this hunger to see God work, to see God move? Or are you just like, yep, we've got to go to this because we're supposed to do. Are you hungering for God to show up and do something in His people? Do you come desperately wanting His Word to change you and His guidance more than you want your lunch? Do you want to hear from Him? The Spirit works when we're desperate for God's will above everything else. The Spirit speaks when our food is to do the Father's will. That's not to say that If we fast this way and we pray this way, then we obligate God to answer in a specific way. It's only to point out that the occasion for the Spirit's guidance is a desperate church. It's the occasion for the Spirit's guidance that we see throughout Scripture is a desperate church dependent on God who longs for God to speak to them and lead them. Are we this desperate to know God and His direction for our church? Do we hunger most for God and His will to be done through us. So the Spirit we see here guiding the church through prayer and fasting. You'll have an opportunity to pray tonight. Wes leads a prayer meeting first Sunday of every month in the Fellowship Hall. And I know some of you can't make it because of work and other things, but if you can, please uh, come and, and join them in praying. Now, sometimes we pray and we fast and the Spirit's going to lead us. But that'll mean He's going to send out some of our best people to other places. And that comes next. The Spirit sends competent people from the church to new regions. 
He might work in some pretty surprising ways, in some amazing ways. And other times we're like, don't want to lose them. I don't know if I like your guidance here, Spirit. I mean, Acts will show you that Barnabas and Saul are some of the most competent men in the church at Antioch. I mean, Barnabas is this generous guy just selling his property and giving to the needy. And you're like, yeah, we need to keep that guy to show the other rich people coming in how they need to use their money. Right? Barnabas is an encourager all the time. Chapter 11, verse 24 says that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Then there's also Saul, whom we more readily know by his Greek name, Paul. What a compelling conversion story he has, right? Surely that would be attractive to the other Jews. I mean, what a competent teacher he is. What a faithful evangelist he is, right? These two brothers are some of their most competent men. Let's keep them forever. And yet that's not what happens. The Holy Spirit says... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then in verse 4 it says, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So he uses the church, but it's the Holy Spirit here confirming this ministry, standing behind it. And the Holy Spirit sends out two of their best guys to areas with no access to the gospel. Over time, you know, we've sent out some of our best. Some of our most competent brothers and sisters we've commissioned to serve as teachers in colleges and missionaries overseas and church planners in other states. And and we've really felt their absence. We miss them, but, but sometimes the Lord wants them serving beyond Redeemer Church. And this, this passage here is a good reminder. Our local church doesn't exist just to preserve itself. We exist for a mission beyond ourselves. We exist to declare God's glory to our neighbors and the nations. We can view ourselves as kind of an equipping hub where people come into the church to know God's glory more deeply and then are commissioned outside of the church to spread God's glory more broadly. And yes, it hurts when they have to go. I mean, in Acts 20, we'll eventually get there, but Paul... He's going out from Ephesus and the people are weeping on the shores as they have to send him away. We've sent guys out, the guys who have have officed here before. We've built relationships and Tuesday morning after the Sunday we sent them out. I walked by the office and there's nobody in the office. And I wept. It hurts to have them go, but what joy we should have and knowing that God's kingdom is marching on through them. One of our most competent and dearly loved brothers just finished his first year of ministry in, in North Africa. And I can't use his name for security reasons. And not so much his own security, but the security of those he's ministering to. But if you're a member, you know who I'm talking about. The Lord has given him great boldness to speak the word without fear in a context quite hostile to Christ. And on top of that, the Lord seems to have saved a few people since his arrival and and through the work of his teammates. I think we can give thanks for this good work, though we miss him terribly. And there are others like him that we've sent out. You know, Max and Laura, where are you? Raise your hand, Max. And there you are, Max uh, and Laura. 
We've sent them out. Meet them and, and learn how you, can, how you can be praying for them. But we need to keep this in mind as the Spirit uses us to send others out. The, the, the people the Spirit sends in the new regions will often face persecution in their work. I mean, we face it too in other ways if we're being faithful, but, but others experience persecution more severely in ways that we haven't yet here. And we even see it here as, as Barnabas and Saul go out, the Holy Spirit sends them out and immediately they face opposition. Right in the next passage in verses 4 to 12, right, you have a false prophet who tries to stop them from doing what they're doing in Paphos. And then they move to Pisidia, but some of the Jews, they then stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And then in chapter 14, verse 2, the Jews at Iconium, they poison the people's minds against Paul and Barnabas. And then Paul comes to Lystra and, and he, he gets stoned and dragged out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And then he gets back up and goes in again and, and starts discipling him, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is what happens when the church sends people out. And we need to be sobered by that, that when we send people out, when the Spirit is leading them to be sent out, it's not going to be hunky-dory times. Easy ministry. No, obstacles are going to be in the way, in their way. And that means we need to pray. We should never reach a point where, where we fast and we pray and we send people out and like, okay, that's it. They're gone? No, we've got to keep praying for them. They need our ongoing prayers for boldness and peace and resources and everything else in that mission entails. Visas coming through. And many others alongside them could use our prayers for endurance in the face of affliction. One of the most difficult parts of being a missionary is knowing that when this man or with this woman that you've befriended and come to know and finally shared the gospel with, that when they embrace that, it might mean death that night when they go home. Or like Max shared a while back, you know, a man might become a Christian, but his wife's Muslim family then kidnaps the wife and his son and demands you recant or divorce her. And they're not giving them back as long as he follows Jesus. Our brothers and sisters in these contexts need prayer. And our passage today gives us a picture of God listening to the prayer of his people as they cried out desperately for him. So I want you to realize as you look around, God has gathered a diversity of people into this church. And the Holy Spirit has gifted some to lead this church. And we have sent out some of our most competent people to missions from this church. We can rest assured that the Spirit is also with this church now as we pray together for God's will to be done and for God's 
guidance of our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. So I want to do that now. And I want you to get together in clusters of about four to six people. And there's a blue insert that you got coming in in your worship guide. Right? So if you're four to six people, finish praying and you're all sitting there like, uh, what do I do now? Because nobody's saying anything. That guide is there to help you with more prayers. It's just scripture. We're praying scripture for, the, for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Use that guide to, to pray more and, and keep praying uh, until uh, Ben comes and leads us in the Lord's Supper. And if you're not a Christian, you don't have to participate in this. And uh, I want you to make known to somebody else that is a Christian here that you're not a Christian. And if you've got objections to the Christian faith or uh, don't know the gospel, I want, I want our members to take advantage of this to, to share the gospel with them and just talk, talk with them about, about those things. Uh, so, but for those of you who can pray, let's, let's do that now.